It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today. We hear from Roland Oliphant, who's on the ground in Donbass. Look at Russia's relationship with the history of the Second World War. And Francis Sternley interviews French journalist Anne-Elizabeth Mouti in a deep dive on the role of France in this war. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 3rd of February, day 345. And with me to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva. We started by checking in with Roland, who all this week has been reporting from Donbass. Good morning, David. Uh, afternoon. We've just been back up to Chasiv Yar, which is, you know, this town that's the kind of, you know, last stop before back with the kind of gateway there. Just to have a little sniff around, I must say, um, since I was last there two days ago, it feels much emptier, far fewer people around. The sound of artillery fire is, is kind of proportionately louder. So you kind of each time you go there, you kind of feel it maybe you're imagining it but it, it seems to be getting you know closer more intense things like that you could definitely hear you know the outgoing and somewhere over there hit landing drop past the the point of invincibility which i wrote about the other day you know this 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 room where people go to get some electricity some heat a bit of food it was largely empty i was told by a woman there that that's partly because somehow they've managed to get the electricity back on in the town which is good news because they were without it for the best part of a week um so people are staying at home to charge their phone. But she also told me that, you know, that people are leaving. Like lots and lots of people are now being evacuated. And there certainly was kind of visibly fewer people milling around and definitely more kind of nerves about that. I certainly felt quite uncomfortable there today. I mean, partly because the weather's a lot better. Um, we've got, I mean, not entirely clear skies, but it's it's patchy cloud and bright blue sunshine. You know, blue sky with, with, with some sunshine. Um it's pretty good weather to, to put a drone up and see stuff. So I was kind of feeling quite exposed. The sense is the same the same kind of pattern that I've been describing over the past couple of few days, which is that the Russians do seem to be, I don't have the details, but do seem to be pushing further and further. And the situation there seems to be more and more tense and very much felt today like a, like a town that is kind of becoming, getting ready to be a battlefield, I'd say. Thanks, Roland. Well, I think Francis has some of those details. There's been an interesting report in Reuters. Francis, can you talk us through it? 
Thanks, David. Yes, well, speaking to Roland's experience on the ground, Reuters are reporting that Russia has picked up momentum on the Eastern Front and announced advances around Bakhmut. Of course, Russia are determined to make progress before Ukraine receives the new battle tanks that we've spoken about at length in recent weeks and months and uh, other armoured vehicles and technology from the West. We're also hearing that Russian forces are pushing from both the north and the south in attempts to encircle the town using what are now superior troop numbers to try and cut off from resupply and force the Ukrainians out. And we're even hearing that from the Ukrainians themselves. That's coming from a Ukrainian military analyst this morning. Meanwhile, Ukrainian news agency reported that Russia is attempting to announce and advance four directions in the Donetsk around where Roland currently is. That's towards Lyman, Bakhmut, of course, Avdivka and Novopalivka. So a lot is happening this morning and I'm sure that there'll be further announcements over the weekend. So I would highly recommend that listeners do check out our live blog on our website, which will be following this very closely because it seems that things are moving quite considerably this morning. Well, thank you very much, Roland and Francis. Natalia Vasilieva, can I come to you? Yesterday was the anniversary of the the end of the bitter battle for Stalingrad in the Second World War. Vladimir Putin was there and he made some interesting remarks. Can you tell us what happened yesterday in Russia? Hi, everyone. Yes, absolutely. Today was also a very rare moment for Vladimir Putin to travel around the country. Pretty much since the COVID pandemic, um, more than two more than two years ago, almost three years ago now, Putin travels very rarely. He's not uh, seen in public a lot, so it was quite a big deal for him to travel to Volgograd, um, previously known as Stalingrad, for the anniversary of the Battle of Stalingrad, one of the most decisive and bitter battles of the Second World War. And as expected, Putin used that opportunity to draw comparison uh, comparisons between um, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union and Nazi advances on the on the Eastern Front, and uh, with um, Russia's operation in Eastern in uh, in Ukraine, obviously to the point that uh, Vladimir Putin suggests that um, uh, Russia is not fighting Ukraine, is not trying to capture another country, but quite on the contrary, is fighting off a potential NATO and Western invasion, as Ukraine has been supplied with Western troops. Um, Again, in terms of what we haven't heard from Putin before, there was a lot of expectations that he could be talking about Russia's new weapons and uh, nuclear weapons in particular. He made a veiled remarks, veiled threat about that, saying that unlike 80 years ago, Russia has, as he put it, uh, other things to respond with. He didn't mention nuclear weapons by name. Um, but he said that, uh, that Russia has ways to respond to that. Again, I think it's important to mention that over the years, Putin has adopted an almost manic reverence of the Second World War and whatever problems he has had in his country, he would always um, refer to the Soviets and the Allied victor in the war saying that, well, it's probably because, you know, we're still reeling from the destruction of 80 years ago, or he would talk about the heroic deeds of Soviet soldiers so that, you know, he wouldn't have to talk about the grim presence of Russia at the moment. Well, thank you very much, Natalia Vasilieva. It's very, I think, important for us to know what Putin is saying and gives us some insight into his thinking. You, I, I see on, on your Twitter feed, we're looking at some of the images and videos of Putin 
uh, leaving or well, going to the, the memorial site in, in, in Volgograd, you noted that there was not a single local resident or visitor in sight. Could you talk us, to us a little bit about this? Why not? And what does this suggest about Putin's frame of mind? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, even if you compare, there was this quite viral selection of photos comparing Putin at the same site in 2018 and 2023. Again, 2018 was quite recently. We're not even talking about Putin, his first term in power. Now, uh, now five years ago, if you look at those images, you can see the honorary guard, a couple of soldiers posted around this um, war monument. This time, they were not even holding any rifles. I mean, that's that's the whole point of the honorary guard. They're supposed to be carrying some sort of weapons. So there was there were no local residents. Pretty much the entire city center was in lockdown. Locals were not allowed anywhere near him. And at that ceremony, Putin was was seen completely alone, completely alone, surrounded by guards who didn't have any weapons. Obviously, that speaks volumes not only to his fear of COVID and getting um, some sort of an infection from other people, but also to quite a tangible fear of uprising and things going terribly wrong. I mean, that's the only reason, I guess, why you would be, you know, stripping soldiers of their weapons if they're standing anywhere close to you. Natalia, you mentioned Putin's almost manic reverence of of World War II. I just wondered a question to you, Roland and Francis, really, if we could explore this briefly. Is is that reverence, to what extent is that reverence shared by other Russian citizens? Does he stand out for how he looks back at history or or, or does he represent a, a, a majority view? Again, this is uh, he and um, Russian state media have been driving this narrative. Again, I'm I'm not a terribly old person, and I lived most of my life in Russia. But looking back at fifteen or twenty years ago, I would remember Victory Day as a day of, um, as a memorial day, as a day when Russians would be mourning um, um, all of the soldiers and civilians killed and killed in the war, and it would be a more somber occasion. And over recent years, it has turned into a holiday of sort into it has turned into this lavish military parade where sort of Russia's victory and all of the glory that the Soviet Union gained from from that war would outweigh the colossal human suffering which was the whole point of the holiday before and again we're now what it's it's been more than 880 years obviously there are very few veterans around there are very few people who were old enough to see it and to take part to you know to push back against this narrative of a victory and the glory that that sort of puts the victory above everything else above the human suffering so it's it's i mean it's really hard to say where the russians share this narrative, but I, I would say that this narrative has been framed by um, Russian state media that, again, has, has put the glorious achievement, the victory above the human suffering that the Soviet people has endured. Thanks, Natalia. Roland and Francis, I just wanted your, your thoughts on this as well. I mean, that's a, I mean it's, it's a national cult, basically. I mean, Natasha's completely right. And it's, and it's been, I mean, I think, I think as, an, as, a, as a British person who's kind of raised on, you know, Remembrance Sunday and Red Poppies and Two Minute Silence and things like that, kind of the, the Russian approach to Victory Day was always a little bit jarring because it, I, I never found it quite as somber as that. Um, and it always was a little bit more celebratory. But, but I remember, you know, I mean, as, as Natasha says, you know, 15 years ago, okay, there was a kind of celebratory aspect to it, but in a kind of, in a kind of good way. Right. I mean, in a, in a kind of, yeah, of course you should be celebrating the end of the Second World War. Of course you should be celebrating the defeat of the Nazis. You know, of, of course, that's an indisputably good thing that, that the Soviet Union achieved. And was it back in 2010, 2011, we even British soldiers marching, you know, joined the, the parade on Red Square. I think we may have been the Welsh Guards, I think. 
um, to kind of symbolize this. And it was, yeah, it was a holiday, but, you know, in a kind of street party-ish, you know, bunting, flag-waving, remember your granddad kind of thing. And it has absolutely been, I mean, it's a strong word, but I think it has basically been completely perverted. It's it's now become this, like, the truth about the Second World War doesn't matter. There was, there was a very telling incident. When was it? It was a couple of years ago. So somebody made a film about these these guys. I can't remember how many. So 17 guys or something. Someone will correct me. Someone will remember this. There was a film made about these legendary, you know, half a dozen men who, you know, legend had it held off you know dozens of german tanks during the battle of moscow and all died heroically in their trench and so on and then russian media pointed out that um well actually that's not true in fact that was basically made up by uh, soviet journalists at the time Rod, if i if i can actually just yeah. bump, uh, jump in here it wasn't even the media it was n- nonetheless than the head of the state-owned history archives who said well, this is exactly okay. the exactly. regiment was exactly. a City, you know, was it like a city legend? Right. So the point is, it was it was a good story that was made up by a propaganda journalist during the war. Right? It had no basis in it, and we know it had no basis in it because uh, the NKVD, the KGB, whichever iteration of the Soviet secret police existed at that point, held an investigation into the story, and they found each of these guys and found out they were alive. And there is a there is a report in the archives that says that no, wasn't true. And this was pointed out, and the culture minister just turned around and said, "Well, that that, that, that that's irrelevant." It doesn't matter. The, the facts don't matter. It's the legend that matters. And it's just so transparently being turned into this this extremely violent national cult, which is all about war and this this rather unpleasant phrase we, we, we can do it that people put on the on the back of their cars and stuff in this patriotic way. And in retrospect you can now see how that was creating this almost war frenzy in Russian society. At the time I kinda of put it down to it's a little bit of a little bit of jingoism it's every country's got it all of that but the way that vladimir putin is absolutely kind of directly connecting trying to connect himself to 1945 it's mad you know it's completely insane he wasn't even alive in 1945 it's ah uh, i'll stop there i think i've described what's going on but i think i think the abuse of the second world war is absolutely central to to the russian propaganda narrative around this war thank you natalia and moland quickly to francis Sternley. Thank you. Well, I echo completely what Natalia and Roland have just been talking about. As we've talked about before, the distortion of World War II memory in Russia has a long, long history. There are history books which ignore the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact between Nazi Germany and Russia, where they divided Europe between them in 1939, so prior to the war. And in fact, there are examples that go further and claim that it was Britain that had the pact, which is, of course, just totally inaccurate. And I remember reading a few years ago an interview with the distinguished British historian Anthony Beaver, who I'm sure will be familiar to many listeners. And he talked about his book, Berlin, The Downfall, and how when it was published in 2002... He, uh, this was denounced in Russia, it was condemned and in many places uh, was refused to be sold. And the then Russian ambassador to Great Britain invited him to lunch and they had a conversation, quite a revealing one, which I think explains some of why World War II history is exploited in the way that it is. And he spoke about how, and I'm quoting here... Beaver's summary of the conversation. The ambassador made the valid point that the horrors and hardships that the Soviet people had undergone over at least three generations, the First World War, the Revolution and Civil War, the famines, the purges and the unspeakable suffering of the Nazi invasion, meant that even those opposed to Stalinism saw the victory in 1945 as sacred. 
by my including references to the mass rapes in Berlin in 1945, I would be causing great offence. I think, this, as I say, this underlines the fact that World War II gives Russia as exploited by Putin, an, an era in its recent history of moral superiority which it can exploit. Because without it, what is its modern history? It's the story of a failed empire, the Soviet Union, and a failed ideology which saw millions die for very little. So that's part of the reason, as I say, that Putin makes such a play of the Second World War and is always trying to be photographed alongside veterans of the Great Patriotic War, as it's known there. Of course, we owe those who fought against Nazism a great debt of gratitude, and I'm not trying to downplay that. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't also observe the shallow exploitation of their memory for Putin's own ends. Thank you, Francis. I'm glad we've touched on that. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more to say in the future. Um, there's quite a few diplomatic updates. Francis, you've been looking into this. Uh, the EU diplomats are, are in Kiev. What are they finding and what are they talking about? Yes, well, we've obviously been shadowing this the last couple of days or so um, and, and expecting there to be some, some big announcements. And that's exactly what we've got. So we are now seeing the announcement of new sanctions, which are going to be against Russia from the, this meeting of the European Commission in Kiev. They've said that it's part of the meeting with counterparts. We've reached a very important mutual understanding. That's what come out, comes out of Mr. Zelensky's office. Only together, a strong Ukraine and a strong European Union, can we defend the life that we value and through our further integration provide energy and motivation for our people to fight on regardless of obstacles and threats. President Zelensky has also said that he wants to hold talks this year on Ukraine becoming a member of the European Union. His quote is, I believe that Ukraine deserves to start negotiations on EU membership as soon as possible. President Ursula von der Leyen has also promised that the EU will introduce, as I say, this new round of sanctions. That The details are sparse, but this would, of course, be the 10th sanctions package since the war began. And they've increased and over the course of um, over the course of time in their severity. Of course, at the moment, there's a new price cap, which has been introduced on Russian um, gas, which is proving significant and important in all of this. And I suppose this is just their attempt to show that they're still doing this. There's also been a further EU pledge as well as part of this summit to ramp up some military, military support for Ukraine by doubling its initial target of training 15,000 Ukrainian soldiers, taking the total to 30,000. And I think that we can obviously imagine the tank crews will be part of that um, as part of the leopards that have now been given. But I think also it speaks to the fact and the, that many, many people within Europe now acknowledge that this war is going to go on for much longer, I think, than many people anticipated. And some of the predictions about how many soldiers would be needed, how much munitions would be needed, were an underestimate. And I think this is a growing recognition of that. Also within the EU, we're hearing today that the German government has approved the delivery of Leopard 1 tanks to Ukraine from its industrial stocks. Of course, there's been an enormous amount of focus on Leopard 2s, which were, are also oncoming. But the Leopard 1s are something we haven't spoken about uh, as much. But these Leopard tanks could happen any time once they're repaired, we're hearing from a German newspaper. So something else that we'll be following closely in the coming days. Dom pointed something to me which he'd received in his inbox over the, week, uh, over the last uh, couple of days as well, which I thought was interesting, which is we've spoken in the past about 
about the New START Treaty, which is a treaty between the United States and the Russian Federation to try and limit the strategic offensive arms. It's been going now since 2011, but there's been an interesting announcement from uh, Jens Stoltenberg of NATO today, who is saying that Russia has failed to comply with legally binding obligations under that treaty. They've refused to convene a session of the Bilateral Consultative Commission, the BCC, within the treaty-established time frame. They've failed to facilitate US inspection activities on its territory, which prevents the US from exercising important rights under the, t- under the treaty. Uh, NATO allies continue to view effective arms control as an essential contribution to its security objectives, but Russia is not permitting us to do what we are enabled to do. So uh, just an interesting example, this, of how a lot of ongoing attempts to reduce nuclear weapons stocks and strategic missile stocks, etc., have all been put on pause by this war. And and worse, you know, there's been an escalation in terms of the uh, investments from Russia in nuclear weapons. Satan II, of course, most famously from several months ago, so this is a, a, a serious issue and one that no doubt will be returning to because NATO are clearly concerned by this. So uh, that's that's where we are, David, in terms of the diplomatic space. Um, but I know that Natalia will have some more within Russia itself. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Francis. Natalia Vasilyeva, you've been writing a number of very interesting stories about events inside Russia. Um, can you take us, first of all, to Zelenogorsk, to a nursery in Zelenogorsk? This is near Krasnoyarsk. Sure, this may sound like a trifling story, but I think it speaks volumes to the atmosphere of uh, fear and repression that we've been seeing in Russia and that is getting worse by the day. There were some reports last week about an unusual complaint that a local residence in the town of Zelenogorsk in uh, central Siberia has filed. Apparently her child has been going to this nursery and from what I've heard from parents, it it sounds like it was a really good nursery. Parents were very happy with the education that the kids have been receiving. So this particular mom has been unhappy with a display of a British flag, figurines of Buckingham Palace guards, and a picture of Queen Elizabeth II. Apparently, this woman has relatives in eastern Ukraine, and she's pro-war, and she has been repeatedly complaining to local officials, eventually succeeding in uh, getting Union flags removed, as she was claiming that the display was inappropriate, while Britain, as she put it, was like the Nazis supplying Russia's enemies in Ukraine with with weapons. Again, I mean, if you think, you know, six or eight months ago, when relations between Britain and Russia were quite tense already, around the time Russia officially declared Britain a hostile country, but no one in their right minds would go and react to a complaint of someone who wasn't happy about British flags and figurines of Buckingham Palace Guard in this corner that celebrated British culture. It's for English classes. So obviously that speaks volumes about how isolationists, isolationist Russia is becoming. Another story that crossed my radar this morning, which is completely unrelated, but I think it's it's quite indicative what what we've been seeing in the occupied territories, and it basically tells you um, what life is going to be like in uh, Russia-occupied territories before those areas are liberated. There was another car bomb reported in southern Ukraine, which is currently under Russia occupation. Officials from both sides confirmed that there was a police officer who owned that car, and apparently as soon as he got into that car this morning, an um, unnamed explosive device went on off, and uh, 
The policeman was killed. The victim was identified as a local policeman who used to work on the Ukrainian police force before he switched sides. Uh, Ukraine did not take responsibility for the attack, but it looks suspiciously like all of the attacks we have covered in the past, which are supposed to be the work of Ukrainian partisans working behind the Russian front lines, essentially um, showing to the Russian occupation administration that they are not welcome here and that they will not, you know, that the Ukrainians will never leave them alone and they will never be able to feel safe there. Thanks, Natalia. There's just one more story I think would be interesting to hear from you about. This is a first-of-its-kind case in Russia where a couple were detained and fined for sharing pro-Ukraine personal opinions during what you write as a private conversation in a cafe. What did you find when you were when you were looking at this story? Yeah, again, in a way, I was struck by it as it's quite extraordinary. And also, again, just like with that story about the nursery, it speaks volumes towards how quickly Russia is becoming a totalitarian society when everyone is spying on each other and the authorities are more than happy to react to any paranoid comment or complaint. So this case was reported over the weekends when a couple, a husband and wife, were having dinner in um, Krasnodar in southern Russia in a cafe. And makes this case special is that those people are now facing charges of discrediting the Russian armed forces for a private conversation. They apparently were sitting at their table in a cafe discussing Ukraine. And then one of other patrons stopped by and started expressing his um, uh, disagreement with their views on Ukraine. Then before too long, the cafe owner apparently called the police and police ended up detaining and handcuffing the couple. They were, the wife was given a fine. The husband was put in detention for 15 days for a misdemeanor disturbing public peace. And now they're facing the charges of discrediting the Russian armed forces. Again, it's quite extraordinary because it's not even about a social media post. We have seen so many criminal cases stemming from a single social media post. So this is something that you would think people are doing in their own privacy. But yeah, this is this is what's happening in Russia these days. Thank you very much, Natalia. Roland and Francis, uh, can we have some final updates from you before we go to our, our final thoughts? Um, I just wanted to uh, add that we, we do have a final death toll for the um, the missile strike on Wednesday night in Kramatorsk. Um, so the uh, Pavlo Kurienko, the governor of Donetsk region, um, has said the search and rescue operation is officially over. They did manage to find uh, the body of one more woman in the rubble um, yesterday. That means that the final death toll was four killed um, and 18 wounded. Um, I mean, as I said before, um, really remarkably slow death toll, um, which reflects how many people have have evacuated from these areas. If that had hit a uh, more densely populated area, uh, we would have seen much, much uh, higher casualties. Thank you very much, Roland, for your thoughts this week. I think it's added so much um, to our understanding of the conditions on the ground in the east of Ukraine. Um, so do stay safe, Roland, and thank you very much. Francis Sternley. Yeah, so coming off the back of Roland's statistics of that incident, we're also hearing more statistics today 
that nearly 200 Russian soldiers are now predicted to have been killed or wounded in Ukraine, according to the latest estimates from US officials. In November, the US's top general, Mark Milley, estimated that more than 100,000 troops had been lost. We reported that at the time. But officials now believe that the figure has soared, according to the New York Times, on the back of these intense months-long battles around Bakhmut and Solodar that we've been reporting in eastern Ukraine. And the tendency of these poorly trained new recruits to go to the front lines. So a very, very marked increase, as I say, from where we were at November to where we are now in the very beginning of February. An increase of over 100,000 killed or wounded from Russian, from the Russian perspective. So quite remarkable, if true. Thank you very much, Francis Sternley. Um, we're coming to the end of our time together uh, as as a group discussion today. So can I just go to all of you for your final thoughts? Francis Sternley. Thank you. I was speaking earlier on about how this this idea of sacred history and World War II, but it's not just World War II. I think it's important to emphasise what Putin has done. When one visits Russia, as I did a few years ago, it's extremely striking seeing the amount of investment and restoration in Tsarist palaces and in the idea of the Tsarist era. And I recall reading a piece in November 2013 or so, I was looking it up before... Um, before we came on, where the Kremlin hosted a rather bizarre gathering of descendants of poets and writers from Russia's golden age, including Tolstoy and Pushkin. There was also interviews around that time with descendants of the 19th century composer Tchaikovsky, of course. So uh, very much a an attempt by Putin to use and manipulate history to pick and to choose, which is something that he's not only done in order to cement his position back home, but of course he has done throughout this war, using references to Peter the Great, distorting truths in an attempt to justify what he has done. And so this is part of his playbook, and it was one that unfortunately was highly predictable. Thank you very much, uh, Francis. Natalia Vasilieva. Yes, I just wanted to latch on Francis. Francis's earlier remarks actually about Russia's mounting battle losses. And um, for me, as someone who watches Russia for a living, I, I would say that that means that we would probably be coming to a point when the Kremlin would be um, in a position when it would have to finally uh, make a choice whether to call another mobilization or not. As we might remember, the previous partial mobilization, as they called it, was very unpopular. They managed to recruit about 300,000 troops. Um, we know that a, a number of those people have already been deployed. A lot of them have already been killed and injured. Um, uh, but we also know that they haven't used up all of those soldiers. They, some of them are still in training and can, could be deployed. Um, but again, um, the amount of troops that lo- Russia is losing every day in wounded and killed obviously puts extra pressure on the Kremlin and I would be looking at the next day to see if there are any signs that um, uh, the, the Kremlin would be in a position that they would be have to be calling another mobilization to call up civilians again. France is one of the countries we haven't spent too much time on on Ukraine the latest over the past year. So my colleague Francis Sternley spent time talking to Anne-Elizabeth Moutet about the role of France, its relationship with Russia and Ukraine, and how French President Emmanuel Macron has been approaching the invasion. 
To those of us who have been following the war since the beginning, France's approach has a certain enigmatic quality. It seems to fluctuate between hardline condemnation of Putin while simultaneously making statements about Russia needing to be given security guarantees for the future stability of the continent. How would you summarise the French response to the war and its position on what needs to be done? The French response to the war has been uneven precisely because Macron has a delusion, I would say, of even-handedness. And you may remember that in 2017, when he came seemingly almost out of nowhere, uh, his great campaign slogan was en même temps, at the same time. And he said, you can be at the same time, left and right, you can defend this and be for that. And he cherry-picked everything he could from both uh, uh, sort of mainstream parties, the Socialist Party and the Neo-Gaulist Party, and he got himself elected. And so he seems to think that he knows best. Uh, he was a top Mandarin in the French civil service before he was briefly a banker. So he's used to sort of things running under his orders. And the result is that he thought he could finesse it. He First of all, at the beginning, the French did not believe that the Ukrainians could fight back, let alone win. I would say that the results speak for themselves and they're not good for Russia. So there is that element. Uh, but there's also something that I would say is more uh, profound in terms of how France has viewed herself since the presidency of Charles de Gaulle. And uh, France sees herself as being between the two great blocks. Yes. Can you give some more background on Charles de Gaulle? Uh, de Gaulle comes to power in 58. This is the height of the Cold War. The Cold War will go on throughout his, his uh, presidency when he changes the French constitution in 1962 to give the French president of the Fifth Republic, who was as unstable as a prime minister in, in, in Italy before, he gives the president of France very monarchic uh, powers. Uh, the president can decide to go to war. He has constitutionally, he has the mastery of the, the armed forces and foreign policy. This is known as the domaine réservé, it's a reserve to the president. And that means that this was something that was tailor-made for someone like de Gaulle, who did sort of embody France uh, in 1940. Uh, it has uh, well sort of worked for following presidents, you know, better or worse. Emmanuel Macron is of a different generation. I'm not going to sort of, you know, say he can't do it, but there is absolutely nothing he's got in common with de Gaulle in terms of political career. And so uh, the situation that he's abusing here in so many ways is something that is not serving him or the country, and mostly because he has no actual political experience. He was never elected to anything. Um, de Gaulle had a 13-year sort of, you know, uh, a moment in which he was in a position. He was not considered as a, somebody who would come back into politics at all between 1945 and 1958. Uh, and uh, that was something that was, and at that time, he created a party. And the party was sort of cross-current, and you could call it a kind of slightly populist party in that it did have uh, left and right elements of people who remembered the war and felt that somebody like de Gaulle was necessary to bring stability to the country. It was also, and I will say this for Macron, I mean, they both are complete Republicans, they didn't want to, they do not want, and they, de Gaulle did not write a constitution that would give the French a, a, a king by any other name or a duce or something. But within those parameters, you you have a, 
uh, a constitution that belonged to the 50s and 60s in France and the Cold War, and you end up having something which after the porters became, became less and less popular, and this is surely something that you also know in Britain, we arrive with man who says there's no such thing as politics. There's not much of a thing as society, but there certainly is no such thing as politics. And we can, you know, pick what we like, and there's no grounding to it. And it's not helped by the fact that he's never been a party leader, that his movement did not become a party because he had been uh, a minister in the François Hollande government and he'd seen the discussions and, 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 and factions within the Socialist Party and disliked it because he thought it was it was messy. Uh, and so he has no understanding of the messiness and, and these, I would say, this sort of the grounding, what politics is all about. And that has not helped him so much in French politics, and it certainly doesn't help him at all in foreign policy, because he sees foreign policy as an essay that he's got to write for his studies at Sciences Po. And anybody who's got sort of human experience sees that, again, uh, foreign policy has got to be tempered by experience and compromise. To Macron, a compromise is not really a compromise with human beings. It's a synthesis. So you can, you can reach something that would be very good. You can say, well, you know, on one side, you've got that. On the other side, you've got something else. And this is indeed the plan for essays that is recommended at Sciences Po, Synthèse, Antithèse. That's what he does. And he has uh, done some very strange things, which is, for instance, not only has he always picked ministers who are not politicians by profession, and again, politics is a is a real skill and you need to have it and he's got no he's got no grown-ups to tell him things and when they, he has grown-ups who are competent uh, like Jean-Yves Le Drian who was uh, um, François Hollande's defense minister he kept on Le Drian but he put him at foreign affairs because he felt that Le Drian was too friendly with the generals which you'd think as a defense minister is not necessarily a bad thing but it was because Macron wanted to have all the power so not only has he MPs who are not professionals. He's got ministers who are not really professionals. They are technocrats. But he also has destroyed uh, a number of, of institutions within France uh, that could have brought in some talent. And one of those which he has cancelled, literally, uh, is the corps diplomatique, the diplomatic corps of France. Civil servants can come from anywhere from the French pretty bloated civil service. As long as the president wants them in the foreign office, that's where they go. Uh, French diplomats who are very diplomatic have not protested much, but what we've heard means that they are extremely angry about this, but they have no voice in the matter. So this is what happens when you've cut yourself off from any kind of experience in foreign affairs, and you think that you can you can organize this the way you sort of balance uh, uh, tendencies within your own cabinet. Macron also thinks that he can uh, persuade anyone. He certainly did this in his career in France, but he was operating within a small pool of elites who are basically from where he comes from himself, the same schools and uh, the same civil service. But he went and spoke to Putin twice. He and his wife admire, and you know, so does every cultured person, Russian culture. But they felt that talking to Putin about great Russian writers would make a friend of his. If you look at pictures of Putin with his real mates, they are guys who wear Adidas uh, shell suits and gold chains. I mean, they are not people who read Dostoevsky and Pushkin. So there was also a misunderstanding of what Putin's country is based on. The way the French elite view Russia is really interesting. 
you know, the joke that people say lots of countries have mafias, but Russia is the only mafia that has a country. It applies very much in Putin's Russia, in which there is no such thing as rule of law. So all of this means that we were uniquely ill-equipped. Another problem in France is that many of the French elites, not all of them, and probably not the majority, but certainly a, a strong minority, have been seduced by the idea that Russia is a great country and France is a natural ally of Russia. This is something that has been fostered by Russians throughout the regimes, because the Soviets uh, sent very clever French-speaking diplomats, politicians to France, and uh, the Putin's Russia sends very clever, very articulate, very well-educated diplomats and influence people to France today. And all these people come from, you know, elite institutions like Gimo, uh, the Foreign Affairs uh, University in Moscow. Uh, uh, and uh, they explain to the French that the General de Gaulle would have liked uh, you know, would have not liked to siding with Ukraine. General de Gaulle was a friend of Russia. France is historically a friend of, Ru a friend of Russia. And that has worked. And what works for agents of influence, Russian agents of influence in, in France, is appeal to de Gaulle's idea that I'm independent, France is independent between the two blocs. That's one thing. And also that uh, the, to foster a rabid anti-Americanism, anti-Anglo-Saxon. We have this myth that Americans and Brits are the same, which of course is not true. All of this has helped this minority, but this active minority in France of politicians, journalists, writers, to push the Russian narrative. And that's also something that Macron, who believes that he's got to listen to everybody uh, and doesn't take much of a decision himself in moral terms because he's not interested. And so you've got, for instance, the perpetual secretary of the French Academy, Hélène carrère dancourt who is, uh, uh, you know, she's a considerable person in, in French literary circles, and she is of Georgian origin, but she's pro-Russian Georgian, and she says all sorts of things about how civilized Putin is. And you've got senators and French politicians whom you found in Crimea in 2015, explaining how the Crimeans were happy to be back within the Russian ambit because it was theirs. And uh, you've got the former head of the French Sandhurst, uh, General Vincent Desportes, who explains how uh, Russia will win the war and, you know, Kazan would be a place where the Russians would fight like at Stalingrad uh, for months. Uh, and even though what he says doesn't happen, it still he still is listened to and invited to television debates day after day. And it's very obvious that he, he, he also peddles the Russian line. The Russian line has changed a bit since the beginning of the war. It's all about peace. And again, it's, oh, we have to stop the suffering on the ground. And of course, we must negotiate with Putin immediately. And that's where Macron gets his, uh, Russia must not be humiliated. And it's very obvious that actually, if Russia is not quote-unquote humiliated and there are peace negotiations, assuming the Ukrainians want it, which is not the case, it would end up giving the Russians what they, what they took this time, not to mention what they took in 2014. French policy is very much, um, it's, it's something that relies on, on a number of 
wise men who may not necessarily be wise, but they are well known. The France, France is not a, about sort of, you know, listening to contrarians, especially if they come out of nowhere or if they haven't been to the right schools. Uh, it's a bit like Britain in the 50s, I would say. But that explains also Macron's attitude. Every now and then he gets an inspiration and goes eventually goes to Kiev, months after Boris Johnson, for instance, and, and he meets Zelensky and he is impressed by Zelensky. And so for a moment, he sort of says, no, we can't do that. And then uh, things come back, probably advisors also tell him things. And, and he, he sort of uh, does sort of uh, navigates between one and the other bank of the stream going downstream. Well, that brings us nicely on then to one of the central questions, I think, on many people's minds, which is obviously we've talked about how Europe views differently, what a Ukrainian victory looks like. What do you think France, or Macron particularly, thinks a Ukrainian victory looks like? Is that one that maintains all of Ukraine's former territory, including Crimea? Actually, no. First of all, the French thought Ukraine would lose. And if you want to call this defeatism, I would agree with you. Throughout, they've said, but Ukraine could get back to the borders of end of year 2014, i.e. when the Donbass and Crimea were taken. And everybody will tell you, not everybody, but many people will tell you, of course, Crimea is Russian. Now, if you have the, the, the figures of the 1991 referendum for independence in Ukraine at a time when the Soviet power had no way of influencing votes. It's probably the time when in the former Soviet Union, voting was the, the freest because nobody did anything about it. Not only did the entire country vote uh, in the end something like 95% in favour of independence, but all the Donbass oblasts voted 83%, and even Crimea voted 54% in favour of independence. That's something that gets you a Brexit vote easily. It's the idea that the they felt Soviet is not true. If you look at you know someone like Zelensky, who was born in uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, whose mother tongue is Russian, uh, who had to so not exactly learn but practice as Ukrainian to to speak Ukrainian the way he speaks Russian from from birth. These were people whom the French would despise and say, well, you know, geography is destiny, and therefore you are pro-Russian. There is a complete misunderstanding about this. The Russian talking points, such as the fact, you know, they they refine the whole thing about Nazis and and they explain, you know, they all sorts of things about the Azov Battalion, which are not true since 2014, because the Azov Battalion was reintegrated in the new Ukrainian army, and and uh, the most extremists didn't stay with the battalion, and, and these people ran a party, I think, at the presidential elections in 2019 in Ukraine, and they polled uh, less than 2%, and they didn't get a single MP uh, so it's very obvious that the, the, the Nazi danger in Ukraine is close to zero. Um, and I wouldn't sort of you know, say the same thing about people who glorify the Wagner group. So none of this is very well known. There is certainly an appreciation that you just do not, you know, even if you think that the place belongs to you really historically, you do not go there with tax. So in French public opinion, there's a kind of small majority in favor of Ukraine. But then it's always it's always good to appeal to uh, selfishness in the French debate, even though when 
push comes to shove, the French will do something else. But they say, no, but we can't. It's causing us trouble. It's, it's, it makes for the more, you know, energy costs. It's, it's bad for the economy. Why should we help? It took some time and a great deal of, of reporting. And I might add an extremely expert use of social media by every Ukrainian, not just the government. The message and the narrative from the Ukrainian side has been very well presented just at the same time that the Russian, uh, what the Russians were doing was coming out. So France has done a number of things that are quite, you know, quite commendable. For instance, very early on, just after the Bucha massacre, when the, the Russians withdrew from Bucha, uh, France sent a number of French forensic specialists from the gendarmerie who worked for weeks identifying all, all the bodies and documenting this so that the proof would be done by people from a neutral country that had experience in that sort of thing. And that also with the work of a French priest, Father Desbois, in war crimes by Russia has been very helpful in documenting the more than 40,000 war crimes perpetrated by Russia. Uh, and he documented this in Ukraine for years, and the project Yahad uh, in Unum is quite remarkable. And this Catholic church, uh, priest went back to Ukraine, where he made lots of friends, and started documenting the war crimes from the, the other sort of uh, fascist power, uh, uh, the Russia. And so all of this is a part of efforts that Father Desbois, of course, is not commandeered by the French government, but the French have said, sent armoured personal carriers, the French have sent a number of things. There certainly is support uh, in parts of French society. I would even say that the French army, um, you have pockets of pro-Ukraine uh, sentiment in parts of the French army. You certainly have a French navy, which is much more Atlanticist uh, than the armée de terre, the, the, the land army. Uh, and anyway, the French army... Uh, it may have retired generals who have opinions, but to be completely honest, the French army is nicknamed uh, the Great Mute, La Grande Muette, has been for more than a century, and it does not intervene in politics. It is Republican. Uh, the last time somebody tried was uh, a push to try and keep Algeria as a French colony. Uh, in, in 1960, and that failed completely because most of the army did not obey the four generals who thought they would sort of get the army to fight against uh, independence, uh, uh, sort of uh, decided by General de Gaulle. Uh, it didn't end the war, but certainly it was very obvious that the French army was was uh, legalist and would not would not do anything. But I find scary that. Uh, the novel that has been uh, uh, the most read in France uh, last year, uh, The Wizard of the Kremlin by um, Giuliano di Empoli, which is a, uh, a, a novelized way of imagining and, and sort of, you know, a roman clé of an advisor to Putin and the way they decide politics, uh, presents Putin in a much more sympathetic way than he deserves. Uh, it shows him having historical sort of uh, uh, um, conceptions long term. It shows him sort of being attuned to the soul of Russia. It shows him uh, having extremely clever aides who never lie to him, which uh, is not really true. And you can see the people who in French politics have said, oh, this is a great novel and tells us so much about Russia. And it tells you about Russia, what Russia thinks you should know about Russia, which is very different from what we're just seeing on the ground. I discovered things about Russia myself just by seeing them make such a mess of things in Ukraine. Uh, and I think all of us did, and all intelligence agencies have got tons of material they, they can work from. Uh, I'm not saying that the Dunano di Empoli book, which got the prize of the Académie Française, you know, it's not a bad book. It's actually a good book, but it's a book that romanticizes things just enough 
so that you can't call it a pro-Putin book. But it still is much too soft on, on the reality. And, and that means that you've got in many circles in France, so things that, oh, but you've got to see both sides. And, and uh, you try and say, look, there are simple things like, you know, if Ukraine would never have attacked Russia, and Russia attacked Ukraine twice. Uh, and it's very difficult to get that because, uh, the first of all, the French are always wary of something that seems simple because we are so intelligent. And also, uh, I will quote uh, an advisor to this day of Emmanuel Macron, a former foreign minister uh, of 20 years ago, Hubert Védrine. Uh, Hubert Védrine, whom I saw at a conference last summer in front of a, a, a room full of Eastern Europeans, which he did not read properly, uh, explaining that, you know, we had to be realistic and we had to sort of bring peace because it was not practical to have this war and that uh, we shouldn't sort of start to put the whole matter about, you know, to see it through the prism of values because it was completely useless. And he got sort of uh, told back by the um, foreign minister of Lithuania, Gabrielius Lambergis, in a wonderful way. Um, but that is something that can prevail very easily in the French elite as, oh, we're too clever to do simplistic things like think that there are the people in the right and people in the wrong. I find your analysis of the mentality of the French elite on these questions very interesting. It's something underexplored and underappreciated here in Britain, I think, and no doubt in other countries. You have to see that it, there's a strange French-Russian relationship because even though Napoleon invaded Russia, uh, it's as if the Russians have half forgiven him. And one of the things that are uh, quite true is that uh, in many ways, uh, the invasion and the pushback against the French invasion in 1812 meant that Russia built herself a culture and that culture flourished in the 19th century extremely fast. Uh, you had elites in Russia who all spoke French, but, you know, the rest of Europe also spoke French. Uh, you had um, Empress Catherine inviting Voltaire, that sort of thing. And Napoleon comes in and suddenly the Russians uh, sort of, you know, they speak Russian. It's a bit like Ukrainians. They're invaded by Ukrainians, by Russians, and they decide that, no, now they're going all to speak Ukrainians, even the ones whose mother tongue is Russian. It's fascinating to see how the effects are similar. And uh, Pushkin comes at that time, and he essentially creates the modern Russian language, which is a thing of beauty. Uh, and then you've got all this literature that, that flourishes, and you've got many links between France and Russia at the time. Flaubert and Turgenev, for instance, were friends. And, and uh, Flaubert didn't speak Russian, but Turgenev spoke excellent French. And they would read each other's manuscripts, and they would discuss each other's manuscripts. And there was the sort of... Uh, uh, um, the feeling that civilization came from France, which the French like hearing. Uh, and uh, as you probably know, uh, the, one of the, the most beautiful bridge on, on the Seine was given to the city of Paris uh, for the World Fair of 1889, which was the centenary of the French Revolution, and the Tsar who gave it to France didn't have sort of much sort of historical sort of noose on this one because it was it might have been announcing things, but it's the most beautiful bridge called Pont Alexandre III, Alexander III uh, bridge. There was this whole thing that the Russians were our friends. There was no reason not to. And what's strange is we fought them in Crimea. But you still had this sort of uh, cultural affection that the French have, for instance, never had with the Germans. Even though German culture is also very important, but it never happened in the same way. And it's very easy to, to for, for Russians to sort of bring this up and tell the French, look, I mean, we look 
to it's the regard of the French that counts for us, and it's the acknowledgement of French culture that counts for us. And so we are brothers, and uh, they they make much of something which was heroic and wonderful, which was the the air squadron called a Normandy Niemen, Normandy Niemen, which was a French Russian air squadron during the Second World War, uh, which did some pretty good things in the Eastern Front. So they bring up all of this, and and they say we were brothers in the great patriotic war. Then you know it doesn't matter that they have constantly, constantly spied on us and had traitors the way you had Philby and McLean and Burgess and all that. We've had the same in France. And they were constantly hostile to the French in acts. But they still foster the whole idea that we like one another. And it worked. I mean, take someone like Jacques Chirac. Jacques Chirac, who spoke decent English, uh, not good, but decent, also spoke Russian. He, he had a, a white Russian tutor with whom he translated Pushkin's Yevgeny Onyegin. And he always had this sort of feeling of affection for, for Russia that you can't see him having for England, for instance, uh, which is, at the end of the day, a country with whom we have much more in common than, than Russia. So all of this is part of the, the strange French-Russian love-hate-love uh, situation. It doesn't, it doesn't rule everything. I mean, the man on the street in France, mostly, but not entirely, will say, uh, but that's horrible what they did to the Ukrainians, because that's, that's percolating. But in terms of French politics, it's a, it's a harder sell than it is in Britain, where you got the point immediately. One final question then coming off the back of that. How reliable a partner do you think that France is from a Ukrainian perspective, thinking long term? Well, we're better than the Germans. <laughs> so that's very helpful in so many ways, uh, because we're, we're, we're not the laggards. I think you have people in France, and I know quite a lot. I mean, I've, I've, I've insisted on people who are pro-Russia because it's shocking to me. But uh, I should not take anything for granted. And I think it's important to say that you've got many people in, 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 in political parties uh, uh, who are completely sort of uh, 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 resolutely for Ukraine. One of my, my bugbears, and the readers of the paper know this, is the Paris mayor, Anne Hidalgo, and about um, you know, her, one of the, her few graces that she's been absolutely impeccable on Ukraine. Uh, and you've got lots of other French politicians like that, left and right. Uh, strangely enough, one of the Trotskyite leaders, Olivier Besancenot, early on during the war, went to Ukraine and came back and he said everything that you should say that Jean-Luc Mélenchon doesn't say about, you know, Ukrainians being fighting for, for you know, existential war for freedom. And he absolutely got it. So every now and then, honesty will flourish. I, I find this in so many ways a... 1940 moment, you know how France was invaded by the Nazis, and this was the beginning of a four-year uh, occupation with a French uh, uh, government that obeyed the Nazis, led by Marshal Pétain. And what's really interesting is you had members of French political parties, left and right, who joined the Pétain government. Uh, I can quote Marcel Déard, I can quote Paul Faure, etc. Uh, and and uh, they were from the left, and normally they ought to have been anti-fascist. And you have people from the right, including um, a, a former colonel in the First World War called Colonel de la Roque, who fomented uh, anti-Republican riots, fighting corruption, very populist riots, in 1934 in Paris. Uh, and, and they almost upset the government. I mean, it was something that was really strong. And he absolutely sided against the Nazis from day one. And he, he died from, from bad treatment in, in Dachau. So uh, it's a moment when you suddenly find people with whom you have disagreed all your life, 
and you find yourself in, in agreement on essential things. And uh, you have people who are friends and you can't stay friends with them because they are in favor of, you know, crimes, rapes, uh, deportations uh, and murder. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Isabel Bouchard and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill.